Hey. hey. You're listening to Avid Research. Avid Research. Avid Research. An Australian STEM podcast. Where we answer the questions you never quite got around to asking. Welcome back to the show team. My name's Amelia and today we have an amazing guest on the show. I'm a little bit uh, starstruck. We have Australia's Chief Scientist, Dr. Kathy Foley. Welcome to the show, Dr. Kathy. Thanks so much, Amelia. It's great to be here. Fantastic. Hopefully starting with an easy question, but I think one a lot of people are going to be quite interested in. What is your job? Look, it is a really good question because what does a chief scientist do? And it's actually threefold. The first one is, of course, that I actually provide the best evidence-based science and technology device and research advice to government. And we do that through our National Science and Technology Council, as as well as through my office and through uh, me as Australia's chief scientist. So that's the first one, helping out the government to make sure they're able to put science at the heart of their policy development and make sure that they've got the best information so that they can put that into the mix. So that's the first thing. Then the second is, of course, my favorite bit too, which is to be able to represent, to champion and to advocate for Australian research here and overseas. And Australia does such amazing research that it is such a pleasure to be that advocate and that champion. So it's a great honour. And then the third one, which is probably the trickiest one, because it's one where there's great opportunities to really try and sharpen up what Australian science can do. And that is to look at how we can make the research sector as efficient, as effective as an, and impactful as possible. And, and that means trying to see how we can improve things like uh, women in science through to making sure we've got the right infrastructure, we're doing the right science, that we're supporting research translation, that universities, public funded agencies and industry research are all able to do what's best so that we can you know, have the great science that leads to the prosperity and well-being that as a nation we're really keen to see. That is a lot of things for one person to have in one job. Yeah, I have a fantastic team that supports me, small, and we could probably be 10 times bigger, And but we're very focused on a few things and we want to do them really well. That's awesome. Are you up for sharing some of the things that you're focusing on at the moment? Yeah, sure. So at the, each year, I get a letter from the minister that gives what's called the expectations of me in this role. And as I mentioned before, the first paragraph said they want me to make sure that science is at the heart of all policy development. So that puts me in a great position. But then there were some other things too, which um, I'm working my way through. And the first one is to make sure the National Science and Technology Council has a really clear role to be able to provide advice to government. And so this has been great setting up uh, pathways to be able to do that. We've got a great team of people or, or council members who are some of the best and brightest, such as Brian Schmidt, who is a you know, Nobel Prize winner and Vice Chancellor of ANU, uh, Professor Barbara Howlett, who's a botanist from University of Melbourne, a very, very extremely successful and highly recognised woman scientist. We've got Genevieve Bell, who is a professor at ANU in really interesting area of looking at the whole IT area. And she's also had great experience working at Intel, even though she's an anthropologist. So she brings amazing insights. Got Larry Marshall, who is the chief executive of CSIRO and having spent 25 years in Silicon Valley, he's been able to, and being a brilliant physicist in his own right, 
He's been a fantastic input. And then we've got others as well who are all eminent and and fantastic. So um, Deborah Henley, who is an education specialist. We've got, uh, it's always dangerous when you go through people one by one, but uh, Geordie Williamson, and also who's a mathematician and uh, one of our leading mathematicians in the country. And I'm just going through, there's one other person who I've missed, which is not a good thing to do. (laughs) It'll come to me in a moment. I don't have the list in front of me. But they're all fantastic contributing in a way which allows us to draw on the broader community and then have pathways such as rapid response to government and longer term programs of research to really help government identify questions and, and deliver on them. So that's the first one. Then the second is looking at open access, seeing how we can make sure that the research that is done here in Australia is made available to the rest of the world to read and for all of us as well as research literature, which at the moment often is behind a paywall. So you have to pay a fee or research organizations pay quite hefty subscription fees that we want to see if we can make that research literature available to everyone in Australia. And so that means that whether in industry, in government, general public, you can read research literature just as much as research academics can. And I think this will have an enormous impact on making sure that information which uh, you can get on the internet is not often not correct, but you can actually go to the real source and hear the correct stuff or read the correct stuff by going through open access. And this will be fantastic for innovation, for startups to be able to get you know, the latest and greatest to be able to help them with their innovations, through to government being able to have policy professionals like doctors, pharmacists, even lawyers, people who are professionals being able to hear the, and read the latest research as well as, of course, um, making it so that um, it's a simpler process across the research community. And then I guess the next one is looking at next generation technology. And so that's where we're looking for quantum. Well, one I'm focusing on is quantum technologies, which is the next generation. We know that the first quantum revolution brought us lasers and computers and, uh, and the internet. And it's something which, of course, imagine what the world would have been like in this pandemic if we didn't have all those capabilities. And so with quantum technologies, what we're looking at is a next step where through nanotechnology, we've been able to access more physics properties. And then with that, we've been able to go and do things differently that gives us a greater power of using quantum to be able to have faster computing, which is more able to do computation you just can't do with classical computers. You can create sensors and devices that can detect things which you can't detect in other ways, such as um, deeply buried mineral deposits or biomedical applications, through to cybersecurity, which is unbreakable. And they're just some of the things. It will revolutionize every aspect of our life when it comes to fruition and we're on a pathway to seeing that happen here. And I've just had a brainwave and remembered the one person I missed out, of course, is Fiona Wood in our National Science and Technology Council. How could I forget her? She was Australian of the Year. She's a medical doctor in Perth who developed that skin, spray-on skin, which has helped so many burns victims. And she is an amazing uh, contributor as well. The fourth thing I'm working on as a priority is the career pathways, thinking how is it that we can make sure that when there's so many different careers coming up in hydrogen technologies, quantum, uh, space, artificial intelligence, machine learning, IT, environmental consulting. There's so many future jobs or jobs now, and there are real skill shortages now for people who have science, technology, engineering, and maths 
And with that, we're trying to make sure that when you're at school, you can see a pathway through doing maths and science in the last years, going on and doing whether it's tertiary education at TAFE or at a university, and knowing where there's a whole plethora of different roles that are using STEM skills that aren't just landing in a laboratory in a white coat, but a whole range of areas, which really we desperately need in Australia because we're shifting our economy from the things which are traditional in the past, which haven't needed those skills, to ones which really do. And it's where our future is, and we need to make sure young people realise that. So they're just the four main focus or key priorities for me this year. They're huge. They are, aren't they? Yeah, but exciting. Somewhat intimidating, but intimidating in that exciting way of like, if we can start to crack some of these, the future is so big and bright. Uh, I agree. I'm glad you see it that way too, Amelia. And something I'd just also like to add is it's just so heartwarming and inspiring to hear someone speaking about such a diversity of problems to solve and opportunities with such enthusiasm and passion. It's really exciting to know that someone like you is in, in these rooms helping other people get excited too. Well, thank you. I hope I can deliver. <laughs> <laughs> I think if you walk into a room with that level of like energy and enthusiasm, you'll definitely make changes. I have to say, I'm a little bit jealous of that uh, Science and Technology Council. That's an awesome group of people to get to hang out with and chat with. Isn't it amazing? And they are all the most lovely people. I sort of won the jackpot there. So it's, and the thing that's really interesting is seeing what they bring fresh thinking, really being able to look at a problem and get that sort of laser-like idea or way of analysing where the issues are in ways which I must admit I would never have thought of. And that's why this diversity of thought's important. And that's also why, you know, apart from anything else, diversity is really important too in everything we do. And that's, um, you know, bringing in lots of different ways of thinking really helps solve big problems. It's exciting. I'm also just from a personal perspective, because I'm not part of a university or anything and I don't have access to journals and stuff, the idea of open access research literature, that it has so much potential and is that it kind of seems like an obvious thing that if that situation changed, so many more people who don't have access to wonderful information would have it. And that that's a really cool key that if you can unlock that one. Yeah, it's um, it's not going to be easy, but the enthusiasm to achieve it is great. And there's a long pathway. We're at the very early stages where we're just looking at what would be needed if we wanted to do this. What are the roadblocks? How at the moment I've got this really simple model, and we're testing that whether it's got legs or not. And we've still, but we've still, uh, as I mentioned, a lot of enthusiasm, but we've still got. I guess we're still at the starting gate, but it's great to hear that you think it's a good idea because I'll, I'll pack that away in my treasure trove of input because that's the sort of information we need to say that this is something which people who aren't necessarily connected to research organizations are interested in. And sometimes I think researchers and even research publishers don't realize the value of their the work that's produced is greater than just beyond you know the people who use it as their profession. So. You've given me encouragement. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure I could find some uh, more people who would also can give you little, what is it, letters of support or something. Oh, okay. Well, I know where to come knocking when the time comes. Thank you. Feel free to answer this question however you choose, but 
I think a, a lot of scientists feel like politicians a whole other just species and they don't know how to interact with government. It's kind of a, a bit of a scary thought. Like are politicians just like normal people? Yeah, they are. In fact, that's one of the things I've really enjoyed is meeting uh, several of the ministers and parliamentarians in different circumstances. And they are nothing like what you see on television and in the news, that's for sure, or being interviewed. Every single one of the parliamentarians I've engaged with have, as far as I've seen, been wanting to engage in a way where they're looking at what they think is best for their constituency and what they think is the right thing to do. And they do take their roles very seriously. Everyone, of course, will have different political perspectives as to whether they agree with the way they've interpreted what the way to do that is. But I always engage with everyone on face value and take on board where they're coming from and respect that. If you think about the commitment for anyone to be an elected official, it's extraordinary. First of all, the effort and personal expense to be able to be elected. And then once elected, especially for the Commonwealth role, is away from home for many weeks you know, of the year, months and months at a time. You've also have to give up a lot of your free time being able to engage with the community. And you're dealing with things which are really important for the nation. You sort of hold the levers to be able to pull. And everything I have seen is that it's always taken very seriously. And I suppose one of the things which, especially in a democracy like Australia, is that we do have a diversity of thought. And I think what we need to do is make sure that we have that diversity and welcome feeling of uh, open discussion where people can have different views, but know in the end it's the you know, majority that counts. And so therefore we have to go along with what the majority says. I think that that's something which you know, I've learned to appreciate even more uh, working in Canberra and also knowing that we've got an amazing public service backing them up. Uh, having worked in CSIRO, although it's a publicly funded research agency, I worked there for 36 years before I took on this role. I've had you know, sort of engagements with the public service, but I was never immersed in it in the way I am now. And although I'm not a public servant, I'm sort of in an independent role. It's still I've got very closely embedded in the, in the public service in, in the day-to-day. -day. And the quality, commitment, and care that I've seen and real belief in the role that public servants have had of feeling that they are there on behalf of Australian people to make, do what is right to make, you know, make Australia the best possible country we can be for our people is really quite staggering, actually. I, I wish more people had the chance to realise that it's not just a job for most public servants, it's actually something which is a true commitment and, and pretty much almost a vocation for them. It's a bit of a shame because when you just don't catch glimpses of the news or something, you could be forgiven for thinking that about five people run the country and like it's a whole machine that we don't actually get to see. And it's, it's really interesting to even hear a little snippet of what, what's involved. Yes. So one of the things that's really interesting, and this is something Alan Finkel, the previous chief scientist to me, uh, set up was fellowship or a um, fellows program for people who have postgraduate qualifications in science and technology, engineering and maths. And uh, they've come in and do a one-year fellowship, coming in and working in the public service in order to understand a bit more about policy. And it's really interesting that the idea was that they come in and then go back to their original, you know, sort of research careers. 
But what we've seen is a goodly number, about you know, sort of 80% or so, have actually ended up staying in the public service because they see how they can see the value of their work really making a difference in a different way to what they had originally envisaged. And so it's something which I think probably we need to think about doing more of. I know in the you know, other countries they have internships and things like that. And I guess there's always the issue, though, of you, know, you need to have a level of probably security uh, management and things like that because it, you're always dealing with quite sensitive information. But even so, it's just, um, it is, you're right, it's, it'd be great if more people had a chance to actually have a glimpse, even, you know, maybe doing, in fact, my eldest son did a summer intern role in Department of Finance when he was finishing off university and fell in love with the public service and now works in treasury. And he was a law student at the time. And he, he found that vacation program actually really worked well for him. I'd forgotten about that. So there, there are programs there. And maybe that's what people need to consider taking up, especially when you're still studying at university and, and seeing if there's a, a chance to have a bit of an experience in the public service, because it is pretty special, I must say. And it's a great opportunity to see, even if you don't stay in the public service, just understanding how that system works and how you as someone external can interact with it in a meaningful way. Like that's really important too. Oh, it is. It's um, The thing which I found really interesting is their ability to do meta-analysis of a whole lot of information because policy development looks, I don't know if you've ever been in this situation, but when I was a young researcher, we used to have what we called the alternative government where the, everyone at morning tea time would sit around the table and talk about, if I was in charge, we'd do this, this, this. And eventually I was in charge. And the thing which you don't realize when you're on the outside is when you're on the inside in charge of something and, and have to be able to make really difficult decisions to lead a, any organization forward is that it's much more complex than for those looking from the outside in. And there's so many things you've got to take into account. So every policy development has to take into account economics, well, science and technology, the past history, because you can't just keep reinventing things and starting with a fresh, clean sheet of paper. You're always building on something in the past. So there's a whole lot of legacy issues. Then there's, you know, sort of all the issues of trying to look at the complexities that we are a federated country. So you've got the states and different jurisdictions and how that comes into play. And then you've got sort of the balance of all the different government departments, because if you twinkle something in one area, it actually has an unintended consequence somewhere else. And one of the things which I've been quite impressed with is the realization of particularly many of the senior public servants who've been quite experienced and worked in different parts of government. And they just know naturally what the situation really is if they do something in a certain way so that it really does home things into good outcomes generally. I mean, sort of some things probably don't always work out as planned. And of course, you'll always have to expect that because it's not a perfect world. But the thing that's really interesting is, yeah, that they have a particular skill set, which I haven't seen elsewhere. So yeah, it's, it's good training for getting jobs elsewhere too, if you wanted to have a, a variety of careers, which I think everyone should probably aspire to. That's fantastic. That They're really awesome insights. Thank you for sharing. Back a little bit to the, the original official questions. What does an average day at work look like for you? Well, at the moment, I'm just in based in Sydney at the moment because my home is in Sydney, but I work in Canberra mostly. But during the lockdown, of course, I've been in Sydney and we're just coming out of it now. And I've been working from home, but the days are pretty much the same. It's just I've been living my life through a computer screen. 
And so normally I start pretty early and the first thing I do is just go through emails overnight that come in because we're part of a, a world of science and technology and engagement. So and just checking on any things that have come up that have been, you know, sort of that need urgent attention. So I love reading uh, campus review and the news clippings just to see what's happening in the research sector. And also just, you know, checking in on on the different things which are my priority areas. And then I have lots and lots of meetings. So there's a lot of planning involved in anything that I do so that I work with my team to be able to go through and I identify, you know, first of all, if there's a meeting coming up, we've got the agenda right, we've got everybody invited, we've got actions from the previous meeting uh, all done. That uh, And so you're sort of working your way through things like that. I give a lot of presentations and interviews. So there's a lot of work in uh, working with my communications team to make sure that I'm prepared, that if there's a presentation that it's prepared and we sort of think through what are we going to say, <laughs> because I usually don't like doing anything unless there's a reason for it and I've got something to say that, you know, purposeful. So we spend a lot of time on that and I'm very lucky that we've got some fantastic comms people in, in the team which write great speeches, help prepare good presentations and really help identify how to navigate media opportunities as well. So that's, that takes up a lot of time. And then as meetings with ministers in order to be able to go through different parts of my agenda and also hearing from them what what are the science questions they need to have answered. So we've been checking in with all parts of government to see what is it that they top of mind for them that we can support with science and technology information. So following through on that. And then I guess there's, so far I haven't done much visiting because of COVID. We haven't done any real trips, but I'm on many committees as well. So um, I'm apart from the National Science and Technology Council, I'm involved with an innovation industry and science Australia, which looks at getting science and technology into business and making sure our businesses are innovative as possible. I'm on the University Research Commercialization Scheme Task Force, and we have a forum of Australian chief scientists, and then we have government group of all the chief scientists around all the different public funded agencies involved with things like COVID vaccines with CITAG, or which is a committee from the health department to look at uh, the whole way of making decisions on what vaccines to buy. Uh, National Data Advisory Group, the Climate Change Authority, it goes on and on. So I'm involved in, because research and science and technology is in everything, it means that I get to be working across government in all different parts of departments, topic areas that have any smidgen of science and technology in it, which of course means everything. And so I have some role in some way of engaging. So as you can imagine, every day is very rich and full. Rich and full, and possibly you never quite know what question is going to come up. Or <laughs> that's, yeah. that's true. But one of the things is really important is to make sure that where I can, I keep an eye on my priorities as well, so that we can, because it's really important to deliver on those things which we said we're going to do. 
and be have a mixture of that responsiveness, which you want to be, but also ones where I'm driving an agenda as well. So it's getting a nice balance there. I'm not sure we always get it or I always get it right. But I guess one of the things I haven't mentioned too is uh, really keen on making sure that we get the full you know, human potential involved. And so I spend quite a bit of time also looking at women in science and diversity and inclusion in, in science and technology as well. And there's a lot happening in that space at the moment, which is so good to see. Yeah, it's good. Got a way to go, but yes, definitely improvements happening all the time, but we've not landed it completely yet. But the enthusiasm and the commitment to achieve change and you know really make sure we do embrace that full human potential is real. It just it's not an easy, it's not easy. <laughs> it's not something like we just do one thing and magic happens and everything's all okay. No, it's a very... We're dealing with very long institutions. They've been around for a while. They've got a lot of inertia. Redirecting that is hard. Yeah, it's not only just the institutions, though. It's all of us. So one of the things people don't realize is that society is very gendered and has been since you know the beginning of humankind. And it just goes back to when a you know baby is born, what's the first thing people look for is what is its gender and uh, or what is its sex. And then, you know, that's... Over time, it's meant that we've sort of ended up with very gendered roles. So, you know, women do this and men do that. And as we've built up more sophisticated societies, that's sort of really played out. And now we're getting to a point where we say we actually want to have equity, equal opportunity, making the most of the full human potential. And it's really hard to let go of some of those things which are really deeply embedded in our psyche. And it's something which, you know, even when you, for example, if I gave you a Jack and a Jane CV and you mark them and I mark, you know, similar ones and we all were the same ones but with different genders on them and we, you know, did an experiment which was a sort of a blind test, you would find that women would be always marked lower than men just because we have this unconscious bias and it's really hard to overcome it. And it's like you've sort of seen how uncomfortable people can be when we're looking at gender fluidity or transgender or things to do with gender because how we relate with people is actually how and our relationships with them is often start the starting point is are they male or female? And so therefore I know how to engage with them. And if you're not really sure, then you don't even know where to start. And this is changing and it's great to see that it's changing, but boy, is it it's something which, you know, we can see is not easy for society as a whole to to really adopt. And so that and that goes all the way through with um science. So if you look at research, the way it's been built up over the centuries is that it's, you know, even how we define what does good science look like, how we do science, how we measure success, what we reward are all very gendered, even though we don't realize it. And and we identify very narrow attributes of what it means to be a good scientist to be the ones which we measure and reward. While, and they suit usually males and usually males from Anglo backgrounds. Or, and what that doesn't do is include different cultures. It doesn't include women, people from you know, LGBTIQ+, all that sort of stuff is just you know, not caught up. And of course, you see, you don't see too many people with disability working in science. Uh, we don't, we tend to not manage all the different aspects of diversity well, and, but it's coming, coming to the fore and people are recognizing that we're losing out if we don't embrace all that potential. And so things are happening, but it's so hard. And it's, it's not like 
just our research institutions. It's just the whole of society and, you know, the way we're structured and, and the way, you know, we manage the fact that, you know, we have to have children we have to for human race to continue. We have to support young women during their 30s at a time when it's a very competitive time in their career. It doesn't matter where they are, whether they're in, in other industries other than science and technology, but in science and research areas, it's even more difficult again because there's a lot of insecure work as well. So these things, are, you know, sort of come together to make a pretty tricky thing to change. But the fact that, you know, for example, now it's very rare that I go to any anything where I see something where there's all men and, and people notice it straight away and feel almost embarrassed. So that's becoming a norm. And, and there's going to be times where you think we've made progress and you, you know, two steps forward, one step backward, but we're still, you know, in the right gradient. And this is something which will take some time for us to really nail. And, you know, we're talking about decadal change here and we've come a long way. Even the 30 years that I, or nearly 40 years I've been working, each 10 years, you can sort of see some improvements, but we're still not there yet. And it can be very frustrating. And I guess it's an area in which it's easy to burn out. But I take hope from the fact that even you're in this chief scientist role, like that however many years ago wouldn't have been imaginable. And you're there and you're incredibly visible. So that's positive, at least. (laughs) Well, something to build on. And it's something which also is a great responsibility, but also a huge honor. And I hope that, you know, in my time in this role, that I'm in a position to see something which leaves a bit of a legacy. So we'll see how we go. Are there any particular initiatives in this area, people or anything that you think are just doing an awesome job and deserve extra high fives for? For women in science? Yeah. Yes. So, look, there are a couple of places which I um, So, classic one is uh, the Walter and Eliza Hall Institute. It's a medical re- institute based in. Melbourne attached to University of Melbourne and it's phenomenal in the way that it's set up a focus on dealing with gender diversity. The reason being that health and medical research actually attracts more women than men in undergraduate and graduate work but we haven't seen them come in to, into the upper echelons. And what, what we've seen is by setting up structures, providing good quality childcare, Leveling the the playing field, so to speak, with um, making approaches with um, employment practices, flexibility, looking at uh, managing things like when people take parental leave. I'm not sure if this particular organization has done this, but I know some have looked at removing any gendered terms in their parental leave policy so that uh, men and women have exactly the same rights to be able to take parental leave. And it's suddenly things really start becoming rebalanced. So that, that's one example. You know, if childcare on site, childcare is probably one of the biggest issues. I think one area that is not being really considered is vacation care. That's something which is a problem which we still haven't come to terms with yet because it's something which is intermittent and, and it's everyone has, sort of tends to take holidays at various times, but there's what is 12 weeks of school holidays and most people only have four weeks of annual leave. So, so we haven't got I don't think anyone's managed uh, vacation care right yet. Another place was, and I probably sound biased here, but Larry Marshall at CSIRO has introduced some really interesting things which have been not specific, apart from having expectation of having equal number of women in his on the board, 
CSRO equal, in fact, he's got more women at the moment on his executive team, really pushing hard to make sure that when you have uh, an interview panel that you actually make sure that the number of people applying for a job and the shortlists actually have goodly numbers of all sorts of diverse backgrounds involved, so gender, cultural, that sort of thing. So you're starting to see that breakthrough because we're seeing more and more women being appointed in senior roles in CSIRO, even in down get, and now getting down into the middle management because it's quite often that's the middle management that's really the tricky one to break through. But the other thing which he introduced, and this was before the pandemic was a thing called balance, where the idea was if you needed to have flexible working arrangements, whether it was working from home for a period of time or whether it was working weird hours, if it was you start with yes and you have to have a good reason to say no instead of the other way around where people you said no and you had to think of a good reason to say yes. And the thing that's really interesting is that everyone has benefited from that. So, you know, people who are not morning people can sleep in and start work late. We had one staff member who is male whose partner uh, was a night, worked nights. And so he asked if he could start work at 11 because that way he could work later. But the reason was that those mornings, his wife would come home from, from work and then they'd have sort of evening slash morning together because by the time he came back, she was gone. And if they didn't do that, then they never saw each other. And that apparently made an enormous difference to this person. And it didn't really make that much difference for in the workplace. So, and, and you know, when there's an important early meeting, he can join it if need be. But, but those sorts of things have really made a big difference. And it's that sort of thing of looking at how to support women, particularly at critical stages. But every, there's always something. Everyone has different – life always has different things serving us up, different challenges. No one has that perfect, everything's going fine. And I think we've designed work to be everything perfect and no one has anything going wrong in their lives. And we've got to sort of change work to realize that that's the norm, (laughs) things going wrong. And I think we're getting there in some places, but we're not there yet. And I think I'm hoping we'll see, we'll be interesting to see in the university sector. They're, They're probably constrained at the moment because they're still struggling to recover from pandemic. But we'll see how the next level of the SAGE program, which is looking at trying to lift the number of women in, in research in science, that see how that goes as it goes into phase two. We'll have to keep an eye on that one. That sounds interesting. There was a lot of gems there and so many things that are just, like you say, it's not like it's only for one group of people in an organization. Everyone's lives are imperfect. Everyone is either up at some point with a a vomiting baby or a vomiting cat like <laughs> exactly right actually that's it's good you brought up pets because there's a lot of people who don't have children but they do have pets who are just as important to them and it's you know having to deal with those sorts of things are really important <laughs> so we shouldn't underestimate you know the complexities of everyone's lives and their relationships with all sorts of people whether it's animals or humans it's um we need to be able to make sure that we can support people so they can be their best. This is fantastic. We'll just rewrite the average workplace and it'll be awesome. <laughs> well, and, and you've got to do that though within the constraints that you've got to deliver. And I think that's that's part of it is also the individual still has to have responsibility that when you're working, you're working, you're not goofing off or <laughs> gossiping or, you know, so, so there's things which we also all need to take personal responsibility for as well. So, you know, that's always that balance. I'm very curious, how have you ended up in this role? Like, 
what did a high school Kathy plan versus like how have you got to being Australia's chief scientist? Well, well, let's go back in primary school. I'm left-handed. I'm I'm dyslexic, so I wasn't seen as sharpest tool in the shed. But I was really good at maths, and I loved the world around me. But you know, this was in the '60s, I guess. I um, you know, I, I can read, but it's and I've actually developed techniques, and I think. On a bad day, I can bumble my way through and misread things, but I've worked out techniques to read things when I'm fresh and make sure that I have the discipline to never allow myself to get too overtired because I do a lot of reading. And also writing. I was not a classic writer, but I've learned over the years. But when I went to high school, I loved science and I was involved in Science Teachers Association school competitions and, and was encouraged by my teachers. And, and then in the last years of high school, we had a great physics teacher and I loved physics and I loved the course that we had, which was a bit different to the one that's taught now. It was called the Harvard Project Physics course. And they really mixed sort of the history and social aspects of physics with the actual uh, physics curriculum itself and I just loved it. So I um, also you know came from a Catholic background where sort of came from my parents went had, were educated they're a lawyer a um, accountant and an architect. So it's unusual for my mother you know to have, even though she died quite young but to have been in a professional uh, and have her own business and to to work even when I was little. And so it was expected I'd go to university. The main thing, though, was I was not really in science. Most of my family are more in business and humanities. And so when I went to university I or left school, I thought I was going to be a school teacher because I wanted to save the world or you know make my mark. But I had always thought that science was a way forward, but, I was, but school teaching was you know the option. Girls didn't think about doing much back then. It's, uh, and I didn't know any scientists. So university, I went to Macquarie University because – it was close to home and embarrassingly, my boyfriend was planning to go there at the time, but he ended up becoming a Marist priest. So that, did, <laughs> so that was something rather funny, but it was a good university for me. It was just a style and it's something I've seen with my own children where different universities have different cultures, engagement with students and stuff. And Macquarie really was the right one for me. And I was lucky I picked that because of the way they have really strong pastoral care there and it just fitted me really well. And the way, you know, the subjects and the way they taught them and the engagement with in the laboratories really built my confidence up. And then I did my diploma in education and then my first year biology lecturer encouraged me to um, go on and do an honours year, win a scholarship and do a PhD, which I did do. And then I applied for jobs in the newspapers. That's in the times when jobs were advertised. And I got a a three-year job at CSIRO and it was the place I always wanted to work, partly because... I love its mission of you know doing applied research, which I am research to have impact. And eventually, and then I got an extension for two years, and then eventually I landed an ongoing role there, which was pretty lucky because at the time I was interviewed for this ongoing position. And it's not like I I actually applied for lots of jobs at different stages. And it always was never just one job, apply, get it. I've actually usually it was apply for five jobs and maybe I'd be lucky to get one. So it's a, but when I got this indefinite role, it was one where I was seven months pregnant during the interview and I had uh, three 
chiefs of division interviewing. So the current chief and two retired chiefs interviewing me for this role. And I didn't expect to get it. And they gave me the job. So that was in 1989, which back then women working when they had children was uncommon. And even then, there were no, was no childcare, a long daycare around at that time. You, now they're on every corner. Uh, when I had kids, I actually had to help build a childcare centre. We went through and did surveys, got funding, worked with local councils, CSIRO and federal government and built a childcare centre across the road from where, on CSIRO land from where my laboratory was. And uh, so I, my kids were able to go to childcare just across the road from where I worked And then, you know, over the time I worked on different projects, I've always been involved in extracurricular things. And I think it's the extracurricular thing involvements that have got me to this role today. So being treasurer of the Australian Institute of Physics and then eventually president, I used to do a radio program on ABC and the Sydney radio station. Um, I did that for five years for one, for half an hour every, every week. And that sort of gave me confidence in talking with media. And just thinking in terms of hooks and telling stories. And then also, I, I was president of Science and Technology Australia, which really got me involved with you know, how science and politics and public service and the whole policy comes together. And then in CSRO, I sort of over time got promoted to different roles, being chief of a division of CSRO, material science and engineering, and eventually chief scientist of CSIRO, which also gave that extra skills. And then la- you know, last year, I was appointed as Australia's chief scientist, which was just such an amazing, for me, ama- amazing opportunity. And, and I must say, uh, just such, I guess, a recognition of just all the different things I've done and what I can bring to the table of um, being chief scientist, because this role, as you've discussed before, covers so many areas and it's and it, I need to be confident in whether it's you know talking about climate change or mRNA vaccines whether it's manufacturing in metals and minerals processing or space or quantum technologies uh, whether it's you know supporting the government in thinking about the Great Barrier Reef or Murray Darling Basin all those sorts of things I need to be able to work across that breadth not that I need to know everything but I need to know where to go and how to present a case and make sure that it's you're able to provide evidence-based information for government. And so that sort of set me up being at very broad networks. And that's something which I'm able to bring on behalf of the research community. So I sort of feel like it's just the right time in my life at the you know, sort of twilight years of my career to make a contribution back because I've had a great career and I've given me the opportunity to have children, a happy family, live in a nice place and um, have health and such I think you could only say really, you know, sort of an opportunity which really having a chance to go and give back in service is something which for me at this stage is is really gratifying. That was such a wonderful adventure. Oh, thanks. Yeah, it has been an adventure. That's a good way to describe it. <laughs> and I, I really appreciate the acknowledgement of both the left-handedness, which doesn't come up a huge amount, but uh, the dyslexia because that. I think is heavily misunderstood by particularly a lot of educators. Yeah, it's it's sort of interesting in that I think modern technology helps spell checker, but also what I think people don't realize is just like anything, you if you know where you're not strong and you can work on things and you get sort of real help. My, my husband's been really helpful. He's a fantastic writer. And giving him things which I've written and then he'd just completely pull it to shreds and rewrite it 
But then going back and learning from what he has done, I mean, I'm still not the perfect writer. I'd love to be able to write some of the people in my team, but I'm good enough and I'm able to get my point across. And I'm editor of a journal. Who would have thought, you know? <laughs> yes. <laughs> One of the things which I still love doing is my still hook into research is editing a journal for my research field of superconductivity. And it's really interesting just being able to help other researchers all around the world, how to write better papers, how to set things up where they've you know, not positioned it correctly. So it's more than just the writing. It's also all the stuff you bring into it and how you organize your thoughts. And so knowing that you can build on that is something which often I think is overlooked. Everyone just sees the fact you can't spell and still, <laughs> I'm, it's still hilarious sometimes. I'm really good at synonyms because if you can't think of even the first letter of a word, you have to think of another word which you know how to spell. So I do that all the time. <laughs> yep, I studiously avoid the word definitively and definitely because I just can't do it. <laughs> yeah, I've got a list of uh, horror words. It's always good to know how much that doesn't have to hold you back. No, it doesn't. And the other is also making sure that you, know, you need to communicate clearly, but often people with dyslexia are usually quite verbal and these days you can actually use are things where you can talk stuff and then it actually turns it into written text for you and then you can go through and edit it. So, you know, there's ways and means. Definitely. We live in the future. Just to try and keep this on time, much as I'd love to keep digging into that wonderful story, are there any myths out there about either your role or science in general that you would like to take this opportunity to do a bit of myth busting? Yeah, look, this is a great question. I'm really glad you asked it. Because this is the thing which probably the biggest myth is that science is all dependent on a single paper. So you might sometimes see someone come up saying, there's this research publication that says, you know, black is white, therefore I'm going to say black is white. And research doesn't work that way. Research or science and technology doesn't work that way. It's based on a whole lot of work being done because no one paper actually is science. It's actually the body of work that comes together where each bit makes a contribution. Sometimes the arrow points in one direction and sometimes into another. And it might be because the way the information's been interpreted, it might be a statistical variation. But what you need to do is to build bodies of work together and then have that sort of meta-analysis to pull it together to say what is happening. And I think that's meant that quite often people have misunderstood how the research turns from the laboratory work and the work that people have done and the modeling, how that comes together and then actually informs what the impact might be and how we might be able to use that information. And so this often causes misunderstanding in the community because they see a single paper on its own that says something that's different to what everyone else is saying. They're saying this paper says that the other stuff is all wrong. And you have to say, no, what you need to do is look at the whole body of work. So if we could crack that open a bit and make sure that everyone understands and that, uh, you know, it took us 50 years, I think, to show the link between smoking and lung cancer. We're seeing the IPCC with looking, pulling together the 1,500 papers, I think it was, that were considered to be able, maybe it's 15,000, a huge number of papers anyway, that were considered to look at the next stage of understanding climate change and a human's engagement and involvement that's led to that and what to do. And then the next stage is what to do about it. And then, you know, it goes through looking at a whole range of different aspects of understanding our world, always starts with someone with an idea 
But then a whole lot of research has to build on that to see whether that idea is something that is valid or not. And so that's probably the greatest myth I'd like to see busted. We'll work on it because that is, I feel like that's also a little bit related to the idea that science is conducted by individuals rather than by teams. This idea that like to be a scientist, you have to be a lone genius kind of thing. It's almost never happens now. (laughs) No, it's a, it's a, it's a beautiful Hollywood stereotype. I understand like aesthetically it's quite nice, but in reality, no. (laughs) No, that's true. It's actually a team sport. That's for sure. Yeah. And they say it's just similar with papers, like one individual piece of research is, yeah, you can't hold it up to be the ultimate truth. No, it might be something which is disruptive, but yes, it's, that's absolutely the case. Yes, it's, uh, it's something which will change the thinking, but then you've got to do a whole lot of work to work around it. And it can take a long time. And some of it, sometimes it's starting with something really fundamental. And I love the idea that the idea of antimatter was thought of in 1880s. And then it was in the 1920s that uh, Dirac actually worked out a mathematical description of antimatter. And then some years later, people realized they could use it to make positron emission tomography, which was now used for medical diagnosis. And it was in 2000 that Time magazine said it was the invention of the year. So, you know, those sorts of things that you're looking at, that took, what, about 100 and something years in order to go from that concept all the way through to product recognition. Yeah, so... It's something where there's sometimes it takes time and also it takes a lot of work by a lot of people. It's a huge commitment. And just to to wrap up fairly quickly, have you got a shout out, a virtual high five who you'd like everyone listening to, you think they're doing a great job and they just deserve lots of COVID safe high fives? Oh, well, look, I think the first thing is that everyone in the research sector who've kept on working through the pandemic, it's been really tough. A lot of researchers have had to either delay experiments or put things on hold, work from home, juggle being able to keep on working while they've been juggling kids, homeschooling. To me, that is extraordinary. And if you've looked at the research outputs that have been continuing, It's been at the same level. In fact, uh, I think there's even been a a slight increase in the number of papers that have been submitted showing that people are still working hard even under this really difficult period of time. So I guess my shout out is to the researchers of Australia, well done, because it's uh, been extraordinary under these difficult circumstances working from home that they've still been able to show what amazing uh, contributions they can make to our, our knowledge and also creating something which hopefully in the future will help you know, us be a prosperous and, and successful nation with well-being and happiness. I think they deserve so, so much appreciation. And I would like to also build on that and give a big shout out to your team who are doing an awesome job of helping get your good word out in, into the world and helping all these things happen. It's awesome. Thanks. Yeah, they are a great team. I'm very lucky. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Dr. Kathy. This has been absolutely wonderful. And I'm just feeling so inspired to know that someone like you is in all these rooms helping make such awesome change. Well, thanks, Amelia. And um, thanks for the opportunity to talk to you today. (laughs) 
Thanks so much for listening. If you like this podcast, you're an absolute gem of a human being and you should head over to avidresearch.com.au, sign up for our amazing email newsletter and get all the download on the upcoming episodes and maybe even get a bit of a sneak peek about what's coming next. If you've been enjoying this podcast, you should definitely subscribe. We're on Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, and even Google these days. Thanks.